Hey, Derek, does this look like a mugshot to you? <laughs> yeah, it does. They tell you you can't smile for your health card picture. You should put it on a coffee cup. <laughs> <laughs> Give it to everybody as a Christmas present. Well, then it would certainly be a mugshot. Ah, <laughs> got it. But um. I have some follow-up on the elevator. Okay. Star takes it to the first floor. Yep. Zero just blinks question marks at me. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Same thing happens if I press the negative button. I can't press... If I press negative one, it just goes question mark. If I, if I, take, if I take too long between the negative and the one, and too long is like, if I'm not super quick about it, it just calls an elevator for the first floor. Uh, huh. Or like the third, if I do negative three, it calls an elevator for the third floor. What happens if you do three minus one? Does it does it take you to the second <laughs> floor? I don't think so. It's pretty quick once you press a button that it can recognize as a floor. It's like, yeah, you want to go there. Uh, it's Fair a pretty enough. quick timeout between button presses. So I yeah. guess it would make sense for it to always timeout after like immediately after two as well if there's no 20th floor. Right. And I got a tweet last night from Devin Estes on Twitter, obviously. And uh, he was at a building that had a similar uh, elevator call panel, and they had a sign over it. This is for Instacart, and it had a sign over it that said, press one for lobby. So there's enough programmers in that building falling into that trap. And we also got several, like, this is one of the more popular segments we've ever done on the show. We got several tweets about, like, in Europe, the zero with, like you like you had speculated, the zero with floor is the first floor, and people were really fired up about this elevator thing. So... You know, I'll keep experimenting, and I'll, we'll have a recurring segment. Derek rides the elevator. <laughs> elevators and zero indexing. Hot topic. The panel for the elevators in Shopify's building are just really unresponsive. And there's a sheet of glass in front of the place where you have to put your fob. So it's real. Uh, depending on, like, some fobs, some people's fobs seem to just work better than others. But if you have a fob that, like, has a weak signal or whatever it can be really finicky to actually get it to read and then once you do finally get to read there's a a good like two or three second delay before the screen then shows floors that you that you can go to and during business hours though because we have floors six through 14 of our building and during business hours the eighth floor which is where the front desk is is unlocked but it's like surrounded by a bunch of locked floors and it just has a little light lock icon over the floor so if you didn't know ahead of time to go to eight you wouldn't think that it would be in there and everybody who's new always just finds the elevators really confusing and i feel like that's just the first step of our interview process is seeing if you can figure out the elevators <laughs> it's an intentional uh and then the first question is how would you improve how would you improve the elevators and then you discuss right. the design problems of that a company i used to work at one of the teams gave uh one of their interview questions was like how would you go about designing the software for a pair of elevators in a building, which was interesting. I never had that interview, but I guess they ended up at one point interviewing somebody who had worked in that industry and just like spat out the answer. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> took them through it was like, okay, here's how it works. You do this and then you put the elevators on this floor. If you want to optimize for these things and you do these things. It's like, okay, yep. nice. I, I guess that's correct. You're way more qualified to answer this question than I am. So <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. Anyway. I like it. Um, so this week I've been working on that project where I'm building a custom query builder. 
that users can interact with using Ransack, which I've learned more and more Ransack uh, just about every week. One of the things I learned, which was pretty neat, is if you want to query on like, so let's say you have a user and a user has many posts and you pass in some parameters that query on posts, it's going to automatically do the left outer join for you. Uh, which is pretty nice. So like before I was setting up the, all the joins that I might possibly need in the query and then running the parameters through that. And I don't need to do that because it will, if assuming there's an association from the record that you are, like the base active record model that you are querying from, assuming that association named that exists, it will just automatically know to left at or join it, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, so because I had talked about how I was going to have to like look at the parameters and decide intelligently what to join on. And it's already doing all that, which makes sense when I stopped to think about it. I was like, oh, <laughs> of course, other people have this exact problem. Quick plug for the left joins method in Rails 5. I know. I'm pretty excited about that because I was writing left joins myself with the string, and I was like, this sucks. <laughs> well, I mean, you could always do it, right, with just dot joins, dot includes, and then just... But it was always a happy accident is that, that that's what it was. Right. And it was one of those things where it'll change at some point, and everybody who's relying on it is like, because that's not documented or expected to necessarily be the behavior. At but. some point, didn't that end up generating a warning if you ended up, if you tried to use any of those columns, it would say like, oh, now you have to also include references or something like that? Um, no. So references got added in Rails 4, and it was basically a way for you, if you're eager loading something. So there's there's dot includes and dot eager load. And dot eager load won't do a left join if combined with joins. But dot references is the way of saying, like, even though we're eager loading this, no, I actually need you to join it because I'm referencing it in a SQL string. If you just do the hash form of where, we call references for you. Okay, cool. But dot joins dot includes still works. And it's fine. It's just you shouldn't need to. Or what if you just want to left join and you don't actually want to eager load the data? Right, which is what I want to do in my case. I don't actually care about. Oh yeah, then you have to use a string. (laughs) You're you're just screwed. Yeah. Well, now I find out that Ransack is doing it for me. And actually, as we got like, I was building up all of these like they had these example. They call them segments. They had these example segments that they wanted to be able to like users to be able to like start off the application with. Like you could have this segment of users, like all users who have ordered between 15 and 45 days ago, or something like that. Right. So they had all these example things, and I was building all these up, and I was like, oh, this is easy. This is an easy query to build with Ransack. This is an easy query to build with Ransack. Totally neglecting to think about the fact that these are also supposed to be arbitrarily arbitrarily combinable, mm-hmm. um, which complicates things because some of the example segments were based on aggregate data, like the count of orders, and some of the segments are not based on aggregate data. They're based on, like treating orders as a series of events and you want to query about a very about a specific thing about an event and so trying to allow people to arbitrarily combine aggregate data over a set of orders along with individual data about orders and the user and things like that proved to be a really difficult problem that was probably solvable but not for the budget (laughs) that um, we had in mind so this week i sort of we, we took a different tact where we are going to be we're still be using ransack things like that but i'm go, we're, we're going to do is take we had to choose between like do we want to filter over a series of events which would be like orders like filter these events these orders or do we want to have some sort of useful predefined aggregates that you can query so basically a user has like an average amount of money they spend at your location or whatever and so we decided to do the user averages uh like basically doing the aggregates getting like the maximum amount of money, the minimum amount of money, the first order, the last order, things like that, which is nice because I can build like one query, one SQL query 
save that in a view and basically end up with a table that you can query just with the active record pretty easily. So I was pretty excited about that, except that one of the things we needed to be able to do was to say, show me all the people who have ordered breakfast five times or something like that. So I was like, okay, how do I, how am I going to do this? And that's where I think I got into some pretty interesting SQL stuff that I thought we could talk about. So the first thing I discovered through some work that Prem had already done on the, on this project was that there's an extract function. So you can take a timestamp, tell it, tell the extract function, like what time zone the timestamp is in and what time zone you want it from. Because the other impress, the other interesting thing is like has ordered breakfast is time zone dependent, right? Like we record the order as having occurred at such and such UTC time. But can, whether can or not just, that's breakfast. Can I chime in with a well actually here? Oh, go ahead. Because just extract has been a, a thing that I, I keep looking at and then I'm like, oh, wait, no, that's right. This is why I don't want to do this right now. Extract is not actually a function. It is special syntax. Yeah, that I, that that seems accurate because I've looked at it and been like, this seems this is behaving not quite like a function. But yeah. And every time because I don't want to support the special syntax right now in diesel, every time it comes up, there's the date part function which uh, behaves similarly to extract, but takes the part that you want to extract from it as a string. Can you also time zone adjust with that function? You can do everything you can do with extract. Oh, interesting. But it's slightly less safe, I guess. Uh, if, if Assuming you're like checking your queries ahead of time, it's slightly less safe because the string can is not guaranteed to be a valid part, whereas your query okay. will be a syntax error if it's invalid with right. extract. So basically what I do is, like, I was like, okay, so the first step is I can extract the hour of every one of these orders. And I could, at that point, classify them uh, and adjusting for, like, we know we know the time zone at, a, at every given location. So we know an order happens at a location. We can adjust using the extract helper or whatever, where we say this is the, what, the extract syntax, sorry, <laughs> um, where you can specify, you know, the time zone you want, the destination time zone. So that worked really well. And then I would be able to say, like, if I extract an hour between, I don't know, say, like, 5 a.m. and 10 a.m., call that breakfast. And just, like, return a column that says breakfast using a case <laughs> statement or something like that. And then do another query over that and count up, like, the group, do a group I, and then count up the instances of breakfast and the instances of dinner and lunch and whatever. But then the requirement came down that, like, oh, no, no. It can't just be breakfast, lunch, dinner, and late night. It has to be like it has to be arbitrarily definable. Like maybe the business is really finding it hard to drive customers between three and four o'clock, so they want to find people who do go between three and four o'clock, and like encourage them to come more often or something like that. So like these time areas have to be definable by them. So I was like, okay, well we can we have extract, so we ha we know what hour they ordered in. As long as we don't need to get down to the minute, we can just have each order have an associated hour to it. But then, like I mentioned before, we're trying to do aggregates here. So I had to have a count of like all of this stuff. So it's very similar to how I would do it uh, when I was just saying the breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's actually easier because we don't have to like then group by this word at the end. We just group by the value of the extract. Mm -hmm. And that would give me a, this is hard to explain, but it gives me like basically the user ID, the location ID, the order ID, and the hour of the or the hour the order occurred in a table that would basically like if it printed out it would go down the sheet right mm -hmm. but then i was like what i actually need is for a count of the number of like breakfasts for this user at this location and i need that to go across the sheet if you if you understand what i'm saying so like i want the rows to be columns like i want 24 columns that are the number of or like 
number of orders at zero hour, number of orders at one hour, oh, at two hour, yeah. at three hour, at four hour. I mean, yeah. Oh, you want them to be columns. I mean, yeah. you, you can do that with a window function. So what I ended up doing after like going through all of the stuff, I was like, well, I could write 24 subselects and that or would that. work. If I only had to do three for like breakfast, lunch and dinner, I could probably do that. It would be pretty crockable. It'd be you'd understand what was going on. But there's actually a function in the table funk module in Postgres called crosstab. And what crosstab does, like if anybody is familiar with Excel, has done a lot of like my wife has done a lot of work in Excel. So she taught me about pivot tables a long time ago. It basically lets you pivot the table, right? Uh, I don't know. There's probably like a mathematical explanation for why it's called a pivot table, but I don't know. Um, so it lets you do stuff like that. And I looked at the Postgres documentation and I asked around in the ThoughtBot developer chat room where I was like, has anybody gotten this to work? And everybody was like, no, I don't understand. Like the example they give you is very, very simple. They use terminology that they don't necessarily explain, like the key and the category and the, and it's like, I'm, what does this mean? I don't know what this means. But like just through like sheer force of trial and error, I was able to actually get this thing to work. And it was it was like an entire day of me. Like I don't think I, I checked the Slack room when I was having the conversation I needed to have and then didn't check Slack, didn't check my email, didn't check anything. Like at the end of the day, I had like 24 missed notifications in Slack and like all this other stuff. It was heads down. Fight. Like I actually, where where I got it to work was actually sitting on my commuter train which I thought was going home, but I was so like engrossed. I had my headphones on and my laptop open that I neglected to realize that I had gotten on the wrong train. <laughs> <laughs> so the day, oh, the day ended with me having a successful SQL statement that used crosstab to pivot the table, but me being in Lynn, Massachusetts, when I did not want to be in Lynn, Massachusetts, I wanted to be somewhere a half an hour away. So succeeded at, at your technical <laughs> task, but failed at life. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. I had to like, I basically, I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll just take the next train back into Boston. Then I'll get on the train <laughs> that goes to where, but I was, oh, I was not at that point. I was not because the schedules get like less and less frequent as the night goes on. I was not going to get home till like eight or nine o'clock at night. So I had to call my wife and be like, can you put the kids in the car and uh, come pick me up? Cause I was dealing with pivot tables. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but well, it was, uh, hey, I mean, at least if she does a lot of Excel, she knew what you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I was pretty excited I got it to work. And like the, the last step of getting it to work was like you the way Crosstab actually works. And I have a blog post like in the in process about like getting this to work because I was pretty excited. And other people said like they had tried it and not gotten it to work. But the way it works is like you give it a base query that you want to pivot. And then you give it like either a query or a list of values of the columns that you want out of it. Right. So basically I gave it that base query where it like gets the count of each of orders at each hour going down the page, but I wanted to cross the page. And then I have to spell out 24 freaking columns that I want it to return. <laughs> so I had to do that. It doesn't automatically figure out what columns you want. And I wanted it on two dimensions. I didn't want just like the number of times a given user had ordered breakfast. I wanted the number of times a given user at a given location had ordered breakfast. And crosstab can't do a pivot across two columns. It has to be like a single key value. Right. If there's another column in there that is not part of like the pivot data, then it's assumed that it's going to be static for all rows and it's just ignored basically. And it's just output in the query in the in the result set. But I was able to get around that by <laughs> using an array as the key. So for the key of the pivot table, I used an array of the user ID and the location ID. 
And then when I select out of the resulting pivot, I just use the array access to say the user ID is this array at the first element and the location ID is this array at the second element. And I get back out correct data. Um, the query ended up getting like super wordy because I also wanted to coalesce nulls out. So if something came out as null, I wanted to coalesce that to zero. So I had to repeat all the call. I ended up repeating all the column names, I think three times in this query. And we'll, I'll link to the actual query in the show notes. Cause I think it's interesting to look at, but, and there's probably, and maybe somebody knows like a way I could get away with not repeating all these column names three times. And I would love to hear that. I'm just really feeling like a window function would have been way simpler. here. So explain to me the window function. <laughs> So window function is basically, uh, it lets you perform an operation over all of the rows in, in, that are returned by a set that you can then filter however you need. It's it's basically, it's an aggregate function mm-hmm. without aggregating. Without a group by. Right. Okay. So it lets, it lets each of the rows remain distinct, but you can basically access the entire query set. Hmm. I'll have to look at it. I don't know. I feel like I used a windowing. I used a window function for something else on this project as well. It was the first time I'd ever used one of those, and I was like, oh, "Okay, that was cool." But it didn't strike me as a use case. Like when I had this use case, it wasn't like I should use that window function thing again. But maybe I just missed it, and we should look at yeah. it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you just want to be like, well, if you want them to be called, yeah, I, like you, you would still have the same issue, I think, where you're going to end up repeating things. Right. You're not repeating things, but you're definitely going to have to do like select, get the whatever aggregation for hour one, hour two, hour three, et cetera. But I feel like you can probably accomplish this with just par- a partition by in, in a window function. Maybe. I just sent you the actual query that I'm running. There's a couple of CTEs in there, but the second one is the one that, uh, yeah, so I, I did it three times. I, I, I listed those 24 columns three times. Once when I'm selecting out all the values out of the pivoted table to do the coalesce with, once to tell the uh, the function what the columns I want are, and another time because I have to define the types of those columns, I guess, uh, as part of the cross tab. I like that this is a SQL query that is complex enough that you have comments. <laughs> well, I knew that somebody would come in and say, like, why are you shoving this into an array? And I was like, I'm just going to answer this question right now with a comment. Right. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, yeah, this is interesting. <laughs> Like, there's no way you, you would look at this and be like, okay, he's doing a bunch of stuff. What? Why is he repeating these columns three times? What is happening? But the key is it works. I verified that it, the data it gives me is correct. Um, and now I have the table of order data that I need. My next trick for this is to actually like the what the marketing folks told us was like, getting like the total number of orders is cool, except that becomes like less and less relevant to you as the longer you stay on the platform right so like a year from now or two years from now total orders starts to be meaningless like you don't know what a lot of total orders are for a person so what they really want is like show me people who have ordered five times in the last arbitrary date range right and so like if it wasn't going to be an arbitrary date range i could just create views that were like this view over 30 days this view over 60 days this view over 90 days but because it's going to be arbitrary, now I'm getting into the land of set returning functions. So in Postgres, you can have functions that return sets, just like a table. So basically, right. you can select from a function. Um, so I can parameterize this CTE here, common table expression. Um, so, At a certain point, don't you just want to just give the user a SQL? <laughs> Believe me, this has actually been so like, the reason we can't do that right off the bat 
is because all of the data for different customers is commingled, right? Right, but you can you can totally work around that with partitions and temporary tables and views and and we could, read only. We could even work around yeah. it by just like creating different schemas that we copy this data into nightly for and be like, you get or this that. schema, you get this schema, you get this schema. You can definitely, in a secure way, give your users the ability to execute arbitrary SQL, assuming that you like. If you do it correctly, honestly, your biggest risk is just DOS, but like timeouts. Right. Well, timeouts. So if I some if I say if I'm connecting from Rails and I say like I have a 30 second timeout on this connection because you can set the timeout on the connection. Does that kill the query on the server as well when the connection times out? You can there's you can definitely set it in Postgres on a per connection basis. Okay. Uh, I, I have no clue if Rails utilizes that. Right. But you can definitely like with SQL tell the server, hey, kill this connection if any query takes longer than 15 seconds. Yeah, I think... And this is specifically with Postgres. I have no clue if you can do that with other backends. Definitely not with my uh, SQLite. But um, right. SQLite, killing the connection does stop executing the query anyway because it's there's no server. Right. Yeah, I also, think that, nobody's using SQLite. I think not in production for a Rails app anyway. Plenty of people are using SQLite in production for embedded. Sorry, things. yeah, I should I should re, I, I should specify in the context of Rails. Right. <laughs> Remember when it used to be a popular thing to do to run SQLite locally in dev, in dev mode and then use a different database in production? You that know, it's funny. So I got a issue opened up because MySQL, like we were doing that, we were excluding some very important information from Schema.rb. For MySQL, mm-hmm. um, which would lead to schema.rp, like potentially just doing something completely different depending on the machine. So now we dumped the full table options. And so somebody opened an issue like, hey, I use MySQL in, in production and SQLite for tests. Right. And now schema.rb doesn't work for me anymore. <laughs> uh, like, please fix this. And, you know, I closed it. I'm like, schema.rb is never meant to be a thing that is specifically database agnostic i seem to remember that actually being a stated goal of schema rb many many it years used, ago it, it used to be that more or less changed in four when we decided like no let's actually start supporting database specific features and right. the real benefit of schema rb ha, uh, has turned out to be it's easier to deal with merge conflicts yeah it's convenient documentation for your schema right it's just it's easier <laughs> to deal with than structure.sql if you can avoid it right I don't know. Anyway, it was just funny. I got I got a bunch of pushback. Like the person was like, I sp- I've spoken to a lot of developers, and all of the Rails developers I know do this. I'm like, really? Yeah. I mean, so that's I, sort of like a thing we all decided was a really right. really bad idea quite a long time ago. Now I did it like five years ago, and I don't remember why. Why was that a thing? Was it just because like setting Postgres up on your local machine was a pain in the ass? No, it's because it's faster. I guess not that much faster. No, it's not that much faster. Yeah, to ultimately some at some point find out like, oh, my thing doesn't work. <laughs> right. As it turns out, SQLite in particular behaves significantly differently than any other database. Right. Like if 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 you are going to ever have a case where like you have an issue with dev prod parity where things are actually working differently, SQLite's the most likely database to to do something differently. It is certainly nice, though, when you're just, like, testing something out and you t- do Rails new and you're like, blah, 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 I got this test app up and running and it's got a database and you're like, I didn't have to do anything. It was just, like, right out of the box. 
everything's working. Didn't have to set up a database. Didn't have to tell it any connection parameters. Didn't have to screw with whether or not Postgres is listening on 0.0.0.0 or 127.0.0.1 or IPv6 or IPv4. Or... <sighs> there, there, Postgres does come on Mac by default. What? No. Yeah. I don't, you think it's in my user bin? Yeah. User, user bin P sequels totally there. P sequel. It's not there. Or user lib uh, lib PQ is definitely there. That's possible. What version of I know this is a newer thing. Also, what version of Mac are you on? The latest released one, not the one they renamed to Mac OS. Yeah, libpq dilibs are are there in user yeah. lib. That's not terribly surprising for things that might need to build, be built against those. I don't know, like what? I mean, Mac's the only operating system that includes that by default. So, hmm. All right. Well. Uh, uh, anyway. Thing that just has caused specific issues for me recently. Why has that caused specific issues for you recently? Oh, how is is this uh, related to your libpq uh, extravaganza? Yeah, this, well, this was related to the, I don't know if I ever talked about it on the show or not, but where having lib JPEG installed through Homebrew is causing everything to blow up. In Diesel? In the Rust bindings for libpq and right. by uh, extension Diesel, yes. <laughs> I think we did chat about this. I never specifically figured the, out the path that led to libpq depending on libjpeg, but I did figure out like why this was all blowing up at least in the build script for libpq. We shell out to pgconfig to see where is libpq located. Uh, and we could also use package config, which would give us the exact same results here. Uh, and it will tell us if you've installed Postgres through Homebrew, it will tell us user local lib. So when we're linking, we'll do a hyphen capital L user local lib. So that's, that'll tell the linker, like, hey, when you're looking for where to link libraries, look in user local lib. And we're statically linking it. But what ends up happening is, so Cargo, the Rust build tool, even if we're dynamically linking it, right, it's still for local compilation building against it in that directory, and then it's going to load the dialib at runtime. Mm -hmm. And basically, for local development, what Cargo does is anything that's a hyphen, a hyphen capital L flag to the linker, it'll put that on the runtime dynamic load path. Uh, because if you're just doing local dev and you were linking against a thing that you are in fact linking dynamically, like that's what it wants to do. Uh, the problem is the reason that libpq is depending on libjpeg is not because of anything like even remotely direct. It's because of some deep transitive dependency of a system framework. And the system framework very specifically expects libjpeg that comes with Mac. <laughs> and so what's interesting about this was if you did cargo run, or cargo test, it would blow up. But if you did uh, cargo build and then ran the resulting binary directly, everything would be fine. Well then, that sounds like a fun one to chase down. Yeah. Anyway, so the the fix is like the weirdest, hackiest thing that I've ever been convinced is a thing that needs to be done. So what I do is, and it's only on Mac, but basically in the build script, if you're on a Mac, what I do is I look and see if libpq is in fact a symlink. And if it is, I find the sim. I follow the symlink and instead add the directory that the symlink lives in to the linker path instead. <laughs> and I only do this on Mac. And this is my rough. This is like, I really, really, really felt dirty because I, I first wrote the command. I'm like, if the result of this is user local lib, <laughs> then don't do that. But that felt so friggin' nerdy. Oh, and that was how I figured out that libpq exists on the system because then it also turned out if I wasn't put, putting user local lib in there, it was using the bundled Mac version, which didn't necessarily include everything we needed it to. 
Right. So, yeah, I, I figure like installing Postgres and also having any image library installed through Homebrew was a common enough thing. And like libpq being a symlink felt like a, re- a reasonable surrogate for you installed this through Homebrew and also reasonably benign enough, but not so benign that I was willing to do it on anything other than Mac. <laughs> what are you running these days? Uh, in terms of... For an operating system. Are you still on Windows? Not right now, because I've been doing Shopify stuff. Ah. So I have like way too many laptops now, because I have a special company laptop now that has the, the company software on it. Ah. It's super secure. Is that a Linux machine? No, it's a Mac. Ah, okay. But it's got the super secure Mac things. Okay. It's got some antivirus and uh, some other it's stuff. It's got the antivirus. Mm-hmm. It's got stuff I, di- I didn't want to put on my personal machine. So yeah. I got, yeah. I, got another, I got another computer now. <laughs> so now I have three computers to carry around. <laughs> I like the idea that you carry them around all the time. No, I mean, once I'm, do- once I'm done with the Rails 5 migration, this computer will probably just sit on my desk at the office and never, never see the light of day again. This computer being, are you talking to me from a Windows machine? No, oh. no. This computer. Oh, that's not the Shopify computer. The one I'm talking on, the Shopify computer. The one oh. I was, yeah. Yeah, no, the Windows machine, I'm on less these days just because I've been doing too many things that like need to be Mac specific, but I do still need to finish the Windows. Uh, <laughs> fixing? Like, fixing, yeah, the build <laughs> passing. If you wait long enough, that Ubuntu thing is actually, is that a thing? Is that real now? Is that yeah, it's beyond, been out. It's, it's beyond been out a beta. While. It's actually like a thing now. I have no clue if it's beyond a beta, but like it's been in publicly available right. for quite some time as far as I'm aware. And there we go. No, problem, problem right. solved. <laughs> it does not even remotely solve the problem for all of the reasons that I was trying to do this. It does not solve the I'm going to a Rails bridge and I'm completely new to development user problem. Install this Ubuntu thing. <laughs> Whatever they call yeah. it. Bash on Windows. <laughs> I, I I just want Rails new to work out of the box. Also, I also want Rails to be included in Windows distributions by default. Oh yeah, because that'll that will be fine. That'll get kept up to date. Uh, it won't have any security <laughs> no, vulnerabilities. I don't, I don't care if it's I don't care if it's kept up to date though, right? For the use case that I'm targeting, I don't actually <laughs> care if it's if it's up to date. Because like, what does Mac ship with? I think Mac still ships with 3.2. It ships with Rails too. Yeah. User bin Rails. Look at that. User bin Rails. Nope. It says, if I run user bin Rails, it says Rails is not currently installed in the system. To get the latest version, simply oh, type sudo gem install Rails. <laughs> it, you, that used to work out of the box. And it, that, it, also, it also encourages you to install gems with sudo. Right. Well, uh, that's how you install them if you're using the system Ruby. Yeah. <laughs> it should just be like, you probably don't want this. <laughs> I don't know what you want to do, but this is not meant for, to be a development computer unless you are willing to... And that's the other thing about using OS X. Like, it's really not a great experience either. You just have to build up enough calluses and know like how to get things to build and know not to run sudo gem install Rails. And I used to have Vim plugins that were written in Ruby. And if I updated the Vim plugin when my Ruby version was set to something other than the system Ruby, and then I switched to a different Ruby version for a different project, then, then Vim then would Vim segfault. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I had to have like all, I had to have notes that were like, "Hey, you're installing this thing. Switch to the system Ruby first. It's like all sorts of crazy stuff. But like, I mean, but at the same time, right? If you're just going to a Rails bridge or something, 
pseudo gem install rails it's fine i guess until what point do you tell them that that's not fine anymore when they are on like day six of wanting to do this and are sufficiently interested that it's like yes and i will be doing this for a while but now their system's all gunked up they've got some some binaries installed in user bin and some binaries will eventually be installed in the location that the the binary is already there yeah but it just does this annoying pseudo gem install rails thing (laughs) you can also pseudo gem uninstall rails I'm pretty sure there's even a, uh, a command you can do to uninstall all gems. Yes, I've done that when I was first getting I was like, oh, I wasn't supposed to do that? How do I, I... I'm sure that's like a starred question on Stack Overflow for me, is how do I recursively pseudo gem install, uninstall all gems? But I also think like, because most people end up putting user local bin in front of user bin anyway. Right, once they know what that means. Like, <laughs> like you would Again, have no reason to you ever don't need do that. To, you, but these are the things that you just sort of start to learn when you're at the point where it's like, okay, what's R- what's RBN? Right. What's Homebrew? What's- but then eventually we all say like, like it's not too long before you're like, oh yeah, you just install RVM and Homebrew or whatever, whatever your version manager of choice is. You just install that and Homebrew and then you're all set and things work. And then like all of a sudden you're like, well, I can't brew install things. You're like, oh, run brew doctor. You're like, well, brew doctor's telling me this. And it's like, I don't know what that means, but I'll just run these commands. Sure. Yeah. Or like something doesn't doesn't install or Nokogiri won't install for whatever reason. It gives you like this weird, right. weird thing. And you're like, ah. And it's all this like stuff that we build up over time to think is not a big deal uh, because we fixed it 500 times. And and this is why I'm, I'm like really against, right? So pseudo gem install rails is one thing. Mm-hmm. But this is why I'm really against, like, with a complete newcomer saying, like, yeah, just install RBN and Homebrew and, like, use this version of Ruby on your machine. And, like, these are actual decisions of systems that you should be somewhat familiar with that change your development workflow. Yeah. And I'm really, I'm, I really am not a fan of telling complete newcomers, like, yeah, just do these things that are, go- that are like, hard to undo if you don't understand what you're doing and, and like our choices that most developers actually make that change how you do things yeah and when I, like when i came to rails i came from doing windows development for the most part and some java development so like i knew how to futz with a class path and i knew right. how to like i mean when you're doing development for net like you just do everything in visual studio and it just works like you don't really worry about everything i vaguely remember having to go to like the global assembly cache and do weird things in there Oh, flashbacks. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> and then you have GUIs to manage all these things. Right, and you have GUIs to manage why, why all these things. Why would you want GUIs to manage these things? Like if you're in that global assembly cache folder in the Explorer, and all of a sudden it becomes like this weird thing and you right-click and it has different options than like right-clicking on a regular file would have because it knows like it has context. It's like, oh, this is a special folder and you want to do this thing. But when I came to it from Rails, I was like, first thing I did was do that. Or, and I came to Rails from that. First thing I did was like, oh, okay, I need to sudo gem install all this stuff. And then somehow I just discovered I was doing this mostly on my own and I was like, oh, RVM is a thing. Let me do that. But like I installed RVM just following like the guide, right? Not knowing what it was doing. And I think that's I I think people who get into that don't necessarily understand. Like it wasn't until years later when like RBM came out and I was like, oh, well, what do these things actually do? Oh, I see what they do. They like futz with my path and stuff like that. Okay, I understand that now. But I wouldn't have been in a position to understand what that was when I first started doing Rails development. I'd have been like, just right. get me to a working thing. <laughs> well, that's why I like System Ruby. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess it worked out okay for me. Although it was really it was really hairy for, like, it wasn't until recently that, maybe in the last couple of years, that System Ruby would even have worked, right? I mean, but, for a long time, yeah. it was 187. 
and that was gonna that was gonna cause you problems. I was, I was about to say so like we 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 say all these things like the reason we have SQLite. By the way, I don't know. I may have gone on a rant about this already. If, I, if <laughs> uh, I'm not going to on a rant, but just full disclosure, I would really like to drop support for SQLite from Rails entirely. Ooh, because no, we, we, we discussed like probably people aren't using it in production anyway, right? Right. It's not. There's not a legit use case with Rails. SQLite it has legit use cases. They just don't involve Rails. Hmm. If you're using SQLite in production on a Rails app, comment and let us know. Now's your chance before Sean kills your dreams. I'm, I'm not going. <laughs> I, no, there's. We, we could do a whole episode where I discuss like why I want to do it and why I uh, like I haven't even made the argument in the Rails campfire and I'm not going to because I don't think it will happen. But it's the thing I would like to do and maybe in like Rails 7 <laughs> I can do it. <laughs> but uh the only real argument for SQLite is like, well, at least on Mac, which describes the majority of our day-to-day users, uh, it's like you can just do Rails new and it works for everybody out of the box. Cause SQL, and you don't have to set anything up because it's just there. Right. Actually, Rails does not just work on Mac anymore. Because the default version of Ruby is 2.0. Right. And we require 2.2. Yep. <laughs> I wonder if that's going to change in the next version of OS X. Might, might get updated. We'll have to check that. I doubt it's going to get updated. They did like once once they did update to one did they ever ship one nine as a default Ruby or did they go straight to two oh? Might have gone they straight, went to, straight two, to two oh. Okay. Oh well. And even then, that was like a year ago. No, it had to have been a little longer. I don't know. Whatever. It doesn't matter. It, maybe it doesn't it work anymore. <laughs> don't pseudo gem install Rails because it's not gonna work. <laughs> oh no, pseudo gem install Rails will work. You'll just randomly get a runtime error for no reason. <laughs> it doesn't get restricted in the gem file? I mean in the uh, gem spec? No way to restrict it in the gem spec. Sure. You can set the required Ruby version in the gem spec. Uh, Hold on. Actually, I don't know if we do that. Let me check. It was something that was added. It was a long time ago, but it wasn't originally in there and then got added. Oh, yes. Required Ruby version. Greater. Okay. You know what? Hold on. I'm going to try pseudo gem install Rails. Yeah. I wonder if it'll actually get, if Bundler knows about that and it'll get a version that's compatible. Oh. Well, this wouldn't go through Bundler, though. True. Successfully installed Rails 5.0.0.1. Oh, maybe the version of Ruby Gems doesn't understand. Oh, wait, no. Pseudogem install Rails is still using my RVM version or RBN version. So you have to sudo user local user bin gem install. (laughs) Hold on, hold on. I want to see this. Okay, sudo user bin gem install Rails. Does that. I feel like RBN might actually still override this. Let's, let's No, I don't think so. We're just going to say, oh, just do RBN shell system. It's taking a long time. <laughs> thinking very hard about this. I feel like this is an indicator that is successfully using the system Ruby. Why would it take so long? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, it's Tune in, in next time for the thrilling conclusion <laughs> of Sean installs Rails. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> it's it's waiting. So okay. it's blocked on IO doing something. I don't know. Here okay, here's a question. How old is the minimum required Ruby version in the gem spec? Is it old <laughs> is it new enough that the system Jim, I'm also on not uh, the newest version of Mac. I'm like two years. I'm on Yosemite. Okay. So I've lost track of what that means. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what it means. El Capitan, I think, is the latest. Oh, oh. 
Oh, okay. Finally, it, yeah, it does not install. It says export requires a reversion greater than or equal to 2.2.2. Awesome. So, um, yeah, it ships with a relatively recent gem 2.0.14.1. I mean, that's probably not what's my gem version. 2.5 is what I've currently got in my current Ruby. It's probably old yeah. too, but it's not as outdated as I thought it would be, like 1.3 or something crazy like that. <laughs> Well, anyway, so the whole the whole argument that we should support SQLite because Rails just works out of the box if we have SQLite there is kind of moot because I think it is actually harder to set up a uh, Ruby version manager properly than it is to just do brew install Postgres. Mm, you have to install Homebrew too, but sure. Well, yeah, but just pipe this script to bin sh. You're good, and give it and give it pseudo access. <laughs> What could possibly go wrong? All right. I got to go get on the right train home, hopefully, okay. uh, instead of the long, wrong train home. So we should wrap up. Show notes for this episode are at bikeshed.fm slash 79. As always, rings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time on Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not doing it again. <laughs>